Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I am your host, Heather Shea. Today we are talking about imposter syndrome and its effect on graduate students. I'm thrilled to be joined by four dynamic individuals to discuss today's topic. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthology. Is your goal to engage in effective assessment, boost data fluency, and empower staff with strategic data collection, documented analysis, and use of, use of results for change? No matter where your campus is in the assessment journey, Anthology, formerly Campus Labs, can help you figure out what's next with a short assessment. You'll receive customized results and tailored recommendations to address your most immediate assessment need. Learn more about how Anthology's products and expert consultation can empower your division with actionable data by visiting campuslabs.com SA now. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, near the campus of Michigan State University. MSU occupies the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. So grateful to the four of you for joining me today on the conversation. So let's meet our guests. As each of you introduce yourselves, Tell us a little bit about your current roles and responsibilities within student affairs and higher education. Um, and I am going to start with my good friend, Alex Lang. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Heather. Thanks for having me here. Uh, again, my name is Alex Lang. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Iowa. Hopefully, will be just PhD by the end of February. Um, I am uh, currently serving as the graduate assistant for the HESA program here at Iowa. So I actually coordinate uh, master's admissions for the program. Um, my pe previous work experiences have included LGBTQ services, student affairs operations and leadership program. Um, and part of what I study is I study uh, students who are on the margins of our campus, but also the forces that push those students to the margins as well. So really excited to be here and chat with these fabulous folks today. Thank you so much for Alex, Alex being here. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the episode of Student Affairs Now. Catherine is a student at Michigan State in the program that I work with. I am, thank you, Heather. I'm excited to be here. Um, my name is Catherine Leachman. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, as Heather mentioned, I'm a second year master's student um, studying Student Affairs Administration at Michigan State University. Um, my graduate assistantship is as the coordinator of campus engagement for the MSU Writing Center, um, where one of my primary responsibilities is um, supervising our writing engagement liaison program, um, servicing other units on campus and engaging folks um, in, in literacy work broadly conceived. Um, I'm also on the graduate staff of uh, My Spartan Story, which is MSU's co-curricular record, and have had the opportunity to be involved in the National Peer Educator Study as well. Um, I'm particularly interested in academic gatekeeping um, and its impact on student sense of mattering. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. I'm thrilled you're here. Eileen, welcome. Hi, my name is Eileen Galvez. Um, I use she and your pronouns. And I'm logging in from the ancestral homes of the Quinnipiac, today known as New Haven in Connecticut. I am a scholar practitioner, uh, which means that I am a PhD student of higher education leadership at Colorado State. And I also have the honor of serving as la directora of la Casa Cultural de Julia de Burgos, the Latino Cultural Center at Yale, and I also serve as assistant dean for the college. I'm also one of the two graduate student reps of the Association for the Study of Higher Education Board of Directors. But you know what? These are like just a bunch of titles. <laughs> and who I am today as a scholar practitioner has everything to do with where I've come from. And so I, I'd like to take this time to state that I am the daughter of refugee immigrants from El Salvador. I grew up with five amazing brothers in South Central Los Angeles, and I've lived in Texas and Illinois prior to Connecticut. Um, my first vivid memory 
was of our apartment burning down during the Rodney King riots. Um, and so it, since then, I wanted to do something about the things that were around me. I just didn't have the language to articulate them. Um, today, many, many years later, my scholarly work, uh, it aims to center the experiences of US Central American college students um, and specifically exploring race and ethnicity because Latinidad is not a race. I know it's hard to believe, but we're different kinds of folks. <laughs> and so um, I'm excited to join the conversation today with this lens. Thank you so much for joining us, Eileen. It's very nice to meet you. Um, Meg, welcome to Student Affairs Now. Thank you. Um, my name is Meg Moore. I use she, her pronouns. And uh, my current position is the Associate uh, Director of Graduate Student Life and Wellness at Michigan State. Um, prior to that, I worked at the Counseling Center. Uh, so I'm a licensed professional counselor and graduated from Michigan State um, in the Hale, uh, from the Hale program. Uh, had the distinction of being cohort mates with Heather. Um, and so it's really fun to be colleagues uh, now and be able to um, really capitalize on the things that we learned about each other as, as cohort mates. Um, and um, I love working with graduate students. Um, my office uh, does health and wellness programming and as well as leadership development programming. Um, I think uh, well-being and leadership are intricately connected uh, that, uh, and, and really excited to be in a place to offer those type of services to students, especially now um, in the midst of all the current challenges that, uh, that we're going through. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a fabulous conversation because you all come at it from both personal and also professional lenses. So thank you for your time today. Um, we're going to kick off by talking about what do we mean by imposter syndrome? And I'm going to cue this up to Alex. Alex, tell us what you think. Yeah, I think the literature really um, sets imposter syndrome as a combination of two things happening at once. One is sort of like our deep doubts about our accomplishments, our skills, our talents, our abilities, um, plus sort of this deep fear that we're going to be exposed that those things are not true, right? Um, I think Meg's going to talk a little, a little bit about how this is about belonging, but it's really this idea that if we're found out, we someone will know we truly don't belong in a space. Um, and so it's these combination of two factors that come together, but I would offer a third one from my own experiences is that imposter syndrome I find is a really environmental condition. Um, it is about being in um, spaces that make us feel like an imposter. And you know, when I started graduate school, I was in a brand new um, geographic location that I'd never been when I started my master's and my PhD. Um, I was in a brand new program where I didn't know anyone. Um, and I was the student who only had like two assistantship interviews the day I went to go visit the program. Whereas like so many other people seemed like to have a packed eight part, like eight site schedule. And I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not supposed to be here, right? So like this stuff starts like, at the moment I decided to apply for graduate school um, in some ways still feel and there's those compounding environments of imposterism. It's like not just living in a new place, but it's also working in a new place, going to class in a new place and um, all of this sort of just um, uh, stacks on top of each other into a not nice stack of pancakes. It's like a poor stack of pancakes in many ways is how imposterism feels sometimes. Um, like an overdone pancake with no butter, no syrup. Um, it's just, ugh. Something and nobody so, wants. Exactly. <laughs> no one nobody wants that. Yeah. Um, and so I think the deep part of this that's really important for me is that, yes, environments and context can really make us feel like imposters, but it's also about thinking about how we negotiate our expectations of what is real and possible for ourselves too. And I think it's a really hard conversation a lot of us don't like having. I know I have a nice therapist who helps me prompt those conversations <laughs> for myself. Um, 
but that's what I think about when I think about imposter syndrome. I think this this bad sack of pancakes is going to be something I really think about a lot now. That was a really on the fly <laughs> metaphor, everybody. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love metaphors as ways to explain the things that we're trying to say. Um, thank you for that, Alex. So I want to ask Meg. I mean, as a counselor, I think one of the things that we know is that some level of self doubt, you know, might be you know quote normal, whatever that means. Um, we could problematize what that means. Um, but when does this cross over into something that might be actually mental health, has mental health implications for graduate students? And, and then I'd love to hear more about what you think about this kind of community belonging and what Alex just spoke of regarding environment, environmental context. Sure, and there's so much to unpack there. Um, but to start with that sense of belonging, I think there's um, a sense that people like me don't belong in a place like this. So it's also about social identity and group identity. If you come from a non-dominant group or a marginalized group, um, there's already, um, that's already one of the pancakes. Um, we're just gonna keep extending that metaphor because it's, it's great. But that's one of the pancakes is that people like me don't belong here. We're mm -hmm. here um, because we, and we have to be exceptional if we are here uh, because, uh, because people can tell by the way we look or the way we sound or the way we dress, there's something about us that marks us as outsiders. Um, and so even though I do think that everyone could potentially experience the sense of imposterism, um, that it, it is different depending on what you look like, uh, depending on where you come from. Um, and so to feel like I belong here, what does it look like to, to have a sense of belonging um, when you come in with that pancake already on your plate? Uh, and so, um, so I think that's definitely one of the big challenges. From a mental health perspective, I do think for, uh, that all humans come into the world asking, am I enough? Am I loved? Uh, and we all have a different set of answers to that, um, and th that we wrestle with at different, you know, based on our, how we were raised, uh, you know, the, the resources our family had, all those things. Um, and, and so I think everyone has some type of insecurities that's normal. Um, I think it becomes a problem when the insecurities start to, um, to drive our decision-making mm -hmm. to the extent that it is really impacting our sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. um, if we are feeling hounded and bullied by our own insecurities um, to the point where it, it increases our anxiety, um, depression, obviously, um, uh, you know, depressive symptoms um, would come from that of feeling in, um, just hopeless and helpless. Uh, so I think that um, there are definitely a, a lot of mental health implications uh, for someone who constantly feels like they don't belong, that they're not good enough to be here, and eventually someone's going to find that out. Um, mm -hmm. It really can feel like, I think, being haunted um, by this, by, by these, uh, these fears, um, and that over time it can absolutely lead to um, complications in your mental health and well-being, and um, it can break down your physical sense of well-being. It can impact you in so many different ways. Eileen, um, talk a little bit about when this might show up for graduate students. Alex spoke of, uh, you know, when they came to campus, right? Or just thought about the idea of co going to graduate school. Uh, is it admissions? Is it when the first, you get the first assignment paper back? Um, talk a little bit about your experience related to that. Yeah, I think, I think higher ed just happens to be one of those environments but it's beyond higher ed. It's, I can't remember when I haven't felt haunted. I really like that um, because that's exactly what it feels like. It, um, you're scared all the time. You're scared of making a mistake. And if someone finds that mistake, how much that mistake is gonna be amplified and how is it gonna affect your various circles or whatever you're dealing with. Um, but as a graduate student, I would say that it started even before I applied. It started in the process of, it, with me as a scholar practitioner is, can I do both? Should I do both? Um, how do I write in my application that I have the capacity to balance these things? Mm -hmm. And what programs should I pick? And I already hear that people look down if you don't do a program full time um, all of these things haunted me to the point where 
I didn't tell, I think maybe more than three people on my campus that I was in a program. I, because I was so afraid that if they noticed anything, they would say, see, she can't do it. She can't handle both things. So at the end of my first year, I revealed to everyone for the past year I've been doing this. It's been really painful for me not to share. It's painful for me now. Um, but I had to be like strategic. I had to be, and and that's the haunting of you constantly feel it's gonna be used against you. So it's, I would say it, it doesn't go away. And yeah. I'm assuming that even after I get these, these digits after my name that I'll, it'll still affect me in some way or another. Yeah, that, wow. I just wanna say thank you for sharing your story and also for the vulnerability, right? I mean, to come to this space and to share. And I, I think even when you get those, the digits, I think <laughs> it's very, very true. Um, that it still shows up in, in all of the roles that we that we carry. Um, Catherine, I think we're going to talk more about writing in a moment as related to imposter syndrome, but I am curious about um, your experience as a master's student um, in, in a program that has also a parallel doctoral program and other, other experiences. Like, how has that shown up in your experience um, in the SA program? Yeah, I think that um, to start, I would echo a lot of, um, excuse me, Eileen's sentiments about um, the application process and even deciding um, to go at the beginning. Um, I can say that um, I did not decide I was going to apply to graduate school until October, the December before applications are due. And it wasn't until I had um, one of my mentors at the time say, you know, like this um, sort of like side hustle that you're doing right now at the university, like this could be a job that you like do, this could be your career. And it didn't doubt on me and um, until someone said something that like that's something I could pursue. I um, had sat next to a number of um, graduate assistants from MSU's student affairs program um, and really looked up to them, admired them, and did not see myself um, as someone who could also sit in that seat. Um, so I, I definitely can empathize with, I, it felt like a secret for a while. I totally hear that even after um, being accepted, I will echo some of Alex's sentiments um, that they shared about the, like the assistantship interview process. Um, I remember it's this weird, you're trying on a program, um, you're trying to figure out if you fit in here, if these could be your friends, your colleagues, your peers, and you're also competing for funding with them and interviewing for assistantships and you know, trying not to be competitive in that way and compare yourself, but it's hard not to, right? Um, so I think that a lot of my experiences with imposter syndrome certainly showed up in that, um, that application process. Absolutely. I think, Heather, you bring up an interesting point about um, the parallel doctoral program. Um, I've been really lucky to um, have hail doctoral students um, serve as mentors for me throughout my um, process as a master's um, student here, but I have often thought about whether I deserve to be in the room with them or um, if some of the research projects I've been um, a part of, I almost said lucky to be a part of, but I worked hard to be a part of those, so I'm going to take that out. Um, if I should, you know, have my name next to theirs as well. Um, so I, um, it's not comforting to know that it never goes away, but I think that it's, um, you have to check yourself. And I, I often think about the advice I'd give to my students on this topic is that, you know, anyone who's admitted to this program, you deserve to be in that room. You're here because you can be successful. Um, and there's a lot of folks that recognize that. And that's something you gotta keep saying to yourself all the way through. Alex, your role at Iowa, um, similar to my role at MSU, is to work, work with coordinating these types of experiences as students come to campus. Um, what are some of the things that you're trying at University of Iowa to, to send that message, you belong here, you deserve to be here, um, like Catherine was just talking about? Yeah, I think the magic really comes in trying to talk to students one-on-one -on -one in, in some way, and so they extent that it's scalable and students feel comfortable doing that but I think that it's always been really important to me to stress like one as someone who is a first-generation college student like 
for even applying to the idea of grad school, unlike college where I feel like there are more folks around me when I was um, coming up through the K-12 system who had been to college, like my teachers, where my parents had not, there were less people around me who knew what grad school was or how to do it. And so saying to these students, I've never done this, e I hadn't done this either until this, so please no question is beyond asking. And I've really appreciated students mm -hmm. who come with like, 45 bulleted questions and asked every single one because I'm like yes like just ask like there's nothing off limits here in terms of um, what we're thinking about. Um, two is really demystifying the process for them a lot. Um, so I think without fail because um, higher education in many ways is a system of merit and so that is the, the sort of system we judge each other by um, because of achievement. Um, folks are like, well, what do I need to do in my application to get in, right? And they're all, everyone's like, what do I need to write in the personal statement? And it's, I, I tell students, this is gonna sound cliche and I just want you to tell me about you, right? Because I emphasize to the students, I'm not looking for 20 different Alex's to fill out this master's program. Gosh, no faculty ever. That. that sounds terrifying. Um, so many Alexes. <laughs> so many Alexes. That would be so much. Like, I know I'm extra. I have, I have awareness of my extraness and like, no one needs that. But we're looking for 20 different individuals who can complement one another. And because the predominant image of um, postgraduate education is medical school, law school, um, sort of professional fields that are actually quite competitive because they want a certain kind of student, there's sort of a reprogramming, not reprogramming, that sounds really like post-structural Foucauldian. <laughs> Where did I go? Sorry, everyone, I'm coming back. And um, a reframing, as the counselors would say, uh, of the what graduate admissions actually looks like, which is a holistic process, which is about finding the right people to come together and teach one another. Right? And when you frame it like that, it's more of like, I'm not competing with these other people. I'm, I want to see how much of you you can show. And that's a lot to combat with folks' experiences in K-12, in college, to sort of like have this flip switched all of a sudden that's really about you as a person and all you bring and not just about your transcript. Um, but it's sort of about continuing to repeat that point over and over again, which for some students has really helped them feel like a sense of relief in many ways um, and just sort of emphasizing that like I'm about to defend this dissertation theoretically in two months and I'm very excited about that let me be very clear and <laughs> like um, by many people's standards in our field I am somebody right and I still feel impostery in so many ways um, it's like uh Right, like I can be published in JCSD. Eileen has a really great piece in JCSD that just came yes. out by the way that you should all check I out. Um, but like no amount of like publication or anything is gonna make this go away at this point, right? Um, it helps let not the publication itself, but the process of feeling competent um, helps. Um, but it's, it's a, it's more of a process and trying to emphasize that with students, I think is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Meg, I want to, I want to turn to you because I think a couple of things that Alex just said really, really resonated for me with our shared, um, experience in the doctoral program, um, which it's so, it's so, so meta, right. For you to have been in this program, but now working for graduate student life and wellness, um, but I was thinking about that idea of a community of scholars. And you know, we heard that quite a lot when we were applying for the, the Hale program. And Alex just spoke a little bit about this idea of how do you complement one's learning? Um, so graduate student life and wellness exists for kind of building those communities um, and emphasizing life and wellness. Can you talk a little bit more about what you do and in what ways you help graduate students kind of think about the ways imposterism is showing up for them? Yeah. Um, so I, oh, I could go in like 20 different directions with this. I'm trying to pick one. I know. I asked you like five different questions. So <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah. Um, well, first, I mean, I think uh, the graduate school experience is not really geared towards supporting one's well being because it is. Hello. 
Can you say that that again, Meg, just in case people miss that? Can you say that one more time? The environment, the ways, the myriad ways that we are judged and compared, because that's what we're coming in for. Everything is, um, it's it's, it's tough. It's tough on on, on having a sense of well-being and balance and any of those things that we're supposed to have. and I do think that community is one of the best ways to combat this sense of not belonging. It's like, find a sense of belonging on your own terms um, because the, 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 yeah, the system is kind of set up to, to pit you against each other, that education is somehow this zero sum game that if someone else has more of something, you have less of something. Now, sometimes it does because funding is, is a zero sum game, but, um, but education isn't and belonging isn't. Um, and so uh, what I try to do in my programs um, and every workshop I've done this during the pandemic, uh, the thing that participants say the most is that it was just so good to be around, around other people who were also struggling because you really start to isolate yourself. The more you feel like you're struggling, the more you wanna hide that, it's gonna make you look bad. Um, in certain programs, it, it does. <laughs> uh, for you to admit that you need some extra time or some extra support, it does make you fall down in the rankings. Um, But even in the programs that are supportive, uh, we still feel that way. And so to be around other graduate students, uh, sometimes to get them outside of the bubble, to talk to people in different disciplines and different colleges, or even just with different advisors. uh, And um, so to, to, to be in those type of community spaces and to hear other people struggling and being authentic with their struggles, um, especially if it's someone that you look up to or someone who is a, you know, fourth year in your program who you think, I'm, I mean, I'm going to remember when I came into, um, and I, I saw a second year Hale PhD student doing a presentation in this colloquium. And I thought, am I supposed to be able to do that next year? Cause <laughs> I'm like Googling words, you know, I don't know what this is. And, um, and so to hear that people ahead of you are still feeling like they don't know what they're doing sometimes. Uh, th- those are some of the best ways to combat the sense of, um, of, of imposterism. And so a lot of my programs are just getting students together in the same virtual space um, at this time uh, to talk about how they're doing, um, especially right now during the pandemic where I-, I have not talked to anyone who feels like they are thriving and at their best right now. Um, and so it's a really important time and extra difficult, I think, for those who already struggle with imposterism because you're imagining this perfect grad student out there who is just using all of this extra time to advance knowledge and, you know, like <laughs> um, read every article that's been written, you know, and uh, so I think it's even harder in the time of COVID um, to, um, to do some reality testing and to check yourself and to say, no, other people also feel unmotivated and like they're not doing even what they should have been doing before. And so I think it's, um, yeah, so those are, so those are the things that we're trying to aim for in our programs um, and, uh, and, and really try to support that and bring that out because it is, it is extra tough, extra pancakes on that pile. <laughs> oh, wow. Someone says they're not struggling. They're lying. They're lying. <laughs> lying liars. They're performative in this space, right? That we're all occupying these little, these little picture windows. Like you've probably seen the everything is normal in this background, but on the other side, it's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is time. So I want to go back to this idea of environments a little bit because I know that, um, you know, systems of higher education were for the most part built and maintained for white people with white people's needs in mind. And the ways that systemic oppression is, is baked into the histories of our institution, I think creates these environments in which imposter syndrome thrives. Um, and, and particularly for students from various social identity backgrounds, right? So Eileen, can you talk a little bit about the ways that this um, imposterism might show up um, differently for students from various identity backgrounds based on your work at Yale or your own experiences? Yeah, I think actually even before I can answer that question, I think we really need to look at the roots of what we call imposter syndrome. Um, It was originally theorized by Clans and Imes in 1978. Uh, This was after, soon after affirmative action is starting to be implemented in the 70s, right, in the United States. 
And Clams and Imes are really working from their personal framework as white women. And so they came out with this paper called The Imposter Phenomenon of High Achieving Women. And when you look at who those women were, they are high-class, educated white women. So when we think of imposter syndrome, the foundation is based on one very particular experience, um, it, which is based on insecurity, right? Yeah. And of course, today we know that obviously, it, this applies to really everyone, but even then, is that the right conclusion? Um, what we really need to ask is maybe it's something altogether differently for other communities. Um, maybe, maybe there is a sense of imposter syndrome and because we all feel it, but this is where critical frameworks like intersectionality, like critical race theory are important. So we can draw that out and say, yes, I'm feeling that and it goes beyond that. Um, and um, maybe the impact, the social impact in a mistake is much greater than the people that it was originally theorized for. Right. So mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I can I can tell you what I what it feels like for me, but I think the point here is, is that specificity matters. And so we need to specifically ask these various communities, what what are you feeling? What messages are you receiving from the institution? Um, how, in what ways do you not feel like you can belong? So that, and actually implement things to change those things and not just say, I hear you. Yes. In a report. In a report. Buried in some 10 year old library document. <laughs> For a yeah. one year committee that won't come back. Hello, speak on. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm also reminded when you're talking about that history that it sounds like it was really rooted in individual experiences without understanding the structural mm -hmm. um, realities, right? And so mm -hmm. I think a lot of, you know, maybe it's about kind of like, well, what can we do individually? Well, what can we do systemically on our campuses? Um, and, and this is where I wanna transition to talking a little bit about the writing center on the role that writing plays. Um, this entire conversation um, it was sparked by a fabulous conversation that uh, uh, Steph Aguilar-Smith and, and Catherine and I had to talk about writing in graduate school and what does it mean to do academic writing um, and how does that kind of foreground um, within the, like, the credential, right, that we're seeking um, this way that imposter syndrome can kind of show up. Um, so I don't know if you want to give folks a little preview of what that conversation was, but talk a little bit about how the Writing Center has really directly addressed and tried to make, um, make communities who have language barriers or what, you know, whatever, feel as if they belong, um, even if the structures around them don't. Yeah, so I would um, start first by um, encouraging folks to check out the Writing Center's website. Um, I'm sure we can link it to there, but it's writing.msu.edu. Um, in the past um, couple of years, they've released um, a language inclusivity statement. Um, talks about a number of things, um, but it really gets to the root of students' um, right to their to their own language practices. And there's a, a text on that as well that um, is a great one to read. I'm sure can be linked as well. But um, I see this in a lot of graduate students um, through a number of disciplines, but especially it's perpetuated for folks who don't see their language practices reflected in what we deem to be academic writing or um, good academic writing, whatever that means. We can problematize that a ton and I love to, but um, you know, we've crafted language in academia as a mechanism um, for, for gatekeeping and exclusion and it further perpetuates imposter syndrome for a number of um, populations who are already kept out um, of academia. I'm thinking of marginalized folks, um, particularly um, whose language practice practices are deemed other um, and, and not that the, the standardized English um, that academia tends to um, subscribe to. Um, I think more broadly, this speaks to the reality that institutions of higher education are constructed in a way that are meant to exclude. And um, these ideas 
are meant to hurt particular groups. Um, that's that's sort of been structured that way. I think we have to confront that reality. Um, I think um, on a more one-on-one -on -one, um, level when working with writers, it, it is so challenging um, when a student comes in and you know, says things, and this happens all the time, that you know, my professor said that I should have um, a native English speaker look over my assignment. Um, at that point, not helping the student isn't an option. Um, and as you know, a, a graduate student um, doing my job, it's, it's really hard to, I don't grade their, their, their work right. Um, and I know that if I, if I don't assist them with this um, and, and help provide tools that they're gonna fail. You know, um, and the professor is going to grade them unfairly. Um, I think the first thing I is really important for me to do is acknowledge um, the harm that those kind of statements and that culture in academia um, causes. And then I see my role as um, teaching the rules of the game, so to speak, and talking about um, how messed up that structure is um, and how do we work in this space right now with the power that I have, with the power that you have, and figure out how to dismantle that structure from within, hoping that. You know, someday I might have more power um, and be able to rewrite some of those rules to the game. So I see a lot of tensions um, in the work um, that I do working with writers, um, but I think there's a little bit of hope um, in recognizing your own agency um, and where you have place to make those decisions. Um, and I will continue to advocate for students' right to their own language practices um, because we need more voices um, tackling all sorts of issues and um, subscribing to a standardized um, academic English that we've prescribed is not inviting more voices and um, we're not doing more or better research by um, using that as a mechanism for gatekeeping. Wow, I, you can see why this conversation just sparked into this broader conversation because I was blown away by that. I mean, we were talking about, um, you know, how do we help master's level students you know, conform and then to come to find out that the writing center at MSU is really this place that's much more inclusive and broad based. So I, I appreciated that um, introduction and, and knowledge, Catherine. Um, Alex, it sounds like a little bit of this rests with faculty. Um, you're teaching a <laughs> little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Just a little, just a little <laughs> bit, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And you want to be a faculty member, am I correct? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Determined. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Alex. <laughs> Listen, yeah. from your lips to all those applications I filled out years. <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, tenure track positions in your future. Um, talk, talk a little bit about what you think, though, that faculty might do to better support graduate students, and, and maybe specifically in student affairs, right? Um, as graduate students as they're coming into these spaces um, around writing? Yeah, I think uh, feedback is so paramount. Um, I think I'm of a believer that feedback is a gift, that folks have taken the time to invest in my either writing capability, my arguments, whatnot. Um, I think that, um, I got a nice kind reminder from students that I can even be more, I think I'm pretty assuring and like supportive in my feedback. And I think, and especially in, um, I think it's offensive to dumpster fires to call 2020 fire, but for the sake of um, the conversation in this dumpster fire of a year, cause I don't want to have to have you put an explicit tag on this episode on iTunes. Um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate anytime. that. Anytime. Um, it's been important to reassure folks that they do, they are knowers, right? That they are folks who do know and bring something to the conversation. They might have not replicated the concepts from the readings exactly in the ways that they needed to, um, but what can, what did happen well, right? Because I think a lot of times in feedback, we think being scholars or being in graduate school is associated with our ability to be critical and oftentimes mm. unkindly critical. Um, I think there are times to be unkind. Let me be very clear because some people somehow don't get the picture if you're not unkind sometimes. That's not students though often. That is often um, our peers who um, maybe need to be taken off a high horse once in a while, right? Um, um, there's, there's space to be <laughs> unkind, I would argue. Um, but with students, I think it's about practicing kindness in feedback and saying, 
not that you got this wrong, but here's an opportunity as you think in the future. I was just grading final paper or giving feedback on final papers um, for a class I co-teach now. And I often said things like, as you continue to evolve as a writer, think about this thing in the future. Like this could be a way that you take your writing from good to great. Um, and how do you emphasize those traits? You know, I often use um, emojis, GIFs, and like text language in my feedback. Um, I'll never forget uh, when I was a master's student at the University of Georgia, um, Chris Linder in like one of my very first papers for her environments class wrote LOL about something I wrote in a paper. And I was like, what? Did you just like laugh out loud about something I wrote in a paper? And it was like this really humanizing, quick concept of just like being like I appreciated what you did here right because I was being smarmy about something I think it was about a campus tour project and um and and those little things remind students that one you're human giving them feedback but two that like feedback does not have to be this slogging process through comments of just how awful I am as a person because that's how often some of this like writing especially feels, especially in a field that prioritizes reflective writing. Reflective writing is really hard to separate from ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, we're more encouraged in feedback to be more and bring more of ourselves to our writing. Well, if we're bringing more of ourselves to our writing, then folks should be bringing more of themselves to their feedback and talking to me as like mm -hmm. if I was another person in the room rather than some piece of paper that's in front of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's really important, um, particularly in feedback mechanisms as, as instructors and faculty, how we think about um, giving students that confidence and self-assuredness. And I think too, it, it's, um, you know, I've moved more assignments in the last year to sort of be, um, you turn in a draft that's not graded first, and then you turn in a draft that's graded, right? How do you build in assignments that allow people to experiment, try different things, um, and, and do so in a way that doesn't maybe affect their ultimate outcome in a course, right? Um, and those kind of assignments have been really well, because ultimately what I want to do is I want to read your best writing, and I want to help you get to your best writing. And so let's do that together across the course of the semester rather than um, just sort of uh, at the end and make it a big stakes, 50% of your pa grade paper that's due in the last two weeks. That's nerve wracking. Who <laughs> needs that? Um, so let me help you if I need to, if that still needs to be a 50% paper at the end of the semester, let's write it throughout the semester then um, as a different way of tackling those things. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, Meg and Eileen, I, this question was posed uh, by one of the other hosts of Student Affairs Now, Susana Munoz. Um, and I, I, I did the, I, I don't know that I'm doing this exactly right. These questions around imposter syndrome don't seem to quite be getting there and like demonstrating, right? And uh, very and, ironic, uh, yes. <laughs> and Susanna wrote, she's like, how about a question like when your imposterism flares up, what do you say to it? How do you literally speak? to your imposter syndrome to counteract its negative effects. So I'll, I'll pose that to you two and then anyone else who wants to jump in. Um, and then we probably will close out a little early uh, and move to our final question after that. So what do you say to your imposter syndrome, Eileen? Yeah, so Dr. Susana Munoz is my advisor. Um, and the paper that Alex brought up is co-written with her um, and the process was in many ways really great uh really kind feedback um but the difficult part was me of what do i do with this and passive voice keeps coming up and <laughs> darn passive voice i tell you passive voice why are there so many reviews and when is it going to be over um <laughs> And in one of those nights, um, Dr. Munoz was like, you know, just reminded me, this is a symptom of me growing up with Spanish as a first language. <laughs> this is how I speak naturally to my family. And I'm being forced to communicate in this colonial manner, mm -hmm. um, writing what, you know, we we say that we we want to do liberatory practices, but even the way we write isn't accessible. 
Um, and, and so I, I think part of that is the recognition of it's not my fault and that's okay. And you know what, whatever, I'll like acquiesce on this paper, but I need to do other things outside of the academy if I really um, espouse two liberatory practices. Um, now, but I, I did want to mention that um, in, I started working at Yale in 2015, and um, which that semester we had the largest demonstrations in Yale history, lots of activism going on. Um, and I very much felt like an imposter as someone not from an Ivy, um, someone with a station, growing up low income. Um, I mean, I remember at the end of the year, a former Dean told me that when she heard that I was Salvadorina, she didn't like it. <laughs> so I was receiving lots of messages of unbelonging um, and it to try and make sense of it, not just make sense of it, but how do I find my footing? Because either I need to figure that out or I need to leave. Um, mm. And so I reached out to my former supervisor and I said, I'm thinking about imposter syndrome, but I'm thinking about specifically, how does that affect communities of color? Would you be interested in submitting a proposal for NASPA with me? And we wrote something together, it was accepted. And then we were told it's gonna be a featured session. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And so we get there and I, I text my, my co-presenter, Brandon Common, Dr. Brandon Common. I'm like, I think this is huge. Like, I don't, this is, mm, it's going to be an empty room. He's like, it's fine. It's whatever. So then the day of, he's like, it's going to be an empty room. Um, and it turns out it was the opposite. It was like standing room only. And the first thing we asked is, are you here for you? And that's what they were there for. Certainly they were there to try and figure out how to best help their students. But it's that we, as in these people, in these titles, in these roles, we also do not feel like we belong. And so since then I've conducted this um, imposter syndrome workshop um, for marginalized communities at Yale. Um, and I, I very much appreciate, Alex, that you brought up environments. Um, it's something that I strongly believe in as well. And one of the activities that we do is think about your environment at Yale. What messages do you receive when you look at these iconic, the, the campus icons, right? Um, and who are the pictures? Who's reflected in there? Um, okay, now let's step away from Yale. Let's think about your environments at home. What were the major icons and who are they? So we're constantly receiving these messages that even though it's not verbal, it's, it's telling us that's the person that belongs, not you. Um, and so my answer to that is let's change the environment, right? <laughs> like let's physically change the environment um, out of that, I created a, a critical history tour of Yale of, well, we know that's not the full story. There's, that. <laughs> There's more than yes. just the admissions tour. Um, <laughs> let's think about that. Yes. So let's push back. But also we have agency in this. And I think most importantly, which I think people have mentioned it already, share it with other people because they're feeling it too. They're probably just afraid to admit it, to be the first one to admit it. And lastly, <laughs> I, which I tell students all the time is, um, don't use deficit language when describing yourself. Cause they'll always say, oh my God, I'm trash. <laughs> you know, like I did this and well, you know what? The messages are already there. Can you not add to the messages that are telling you? And so we, we have agency too. Well, that's, that's really a perfect segue into what I was going to talk about, um, because this idea of negative self-talk, you know, the way that we talk to ourselves has so much power. And, you know, in my years as a mental health professional and, you know, now doing the work I do now, um, I think that the way we talk to ourselves is 
one of the greatest predictors for future mental health and well-being. Uh, and it's the thing that we have the most control over. Not full control, because there are messages and tapes that just kind of run on a loop in our heads. Um, and so it's, it's not just a simple uh, fix, but, um, well, I guess I should say it's not easy, but it is simple mm -hmm. in the sense that if we can figure out how to be a little more kind to ourselves over time, it will make a huge difference. And, and this idea of imposterism, the, the ways that we're convincing ourselves that we don't belong, that something is wrong with us, that other people are gonna find out, that deficit view of ourselves. Um, and, uh, and, and we're all too quick to find confirmation right? Any type of negative feedback, uh, which feels, any type of feedback feels negative, um, confirms, oh my gosh, see, I'm, I'm not good enough. And so I think uh, one of the exercises that I have um, people do is this, how to, how to become a friend to yourself. And if you just think of some of the things that you say to yourself, and most high achieving people, and I would put grad students in that category pretty firmly, um, have like a, a, a very bully voice inside of their heads that's getting to them to do things, especially now when our motivation is so low, you know, like, oh, you're just so lazy, I can't believe you, blah, blah, blah. If you heard, if you, so imagine someone that you love, and imagine another person saying those things to this person that you love. How would you feel about that? And I can tell you right now, I would be in, I would have violence in my heart <laughs> um, uh, towards someone who said anything like that to someone that I love that would not fly. Mama bear would come out and I would have some feel, thoughts and feelings about that. If it's not okay to someone to say to someone else, it's not okay to say to yourself. And it matters. We know that words matter. Why would you be so mad if someone said something? They're just words, right? but they matter and they have an impact and they leave marks um, in, some, in, in deeper ways, in some ways than physical things can, can, can do um, because it's hurting us from the inside. So if we can figure out how to be a friend to ourselves and be consistent, be the kind of, because we all know this too, you know when a friend is struggling with imposterism and you hear them say something like my work is crap and you're like, your work is, the, I wish that I could do work as good as you're doing. You know, the way that we encourage our friends, we know how to do it. So we have the capacity we just have to figure out how to point it at ourselves and be the same kind of friend to other to ourselves as we are to others. If you can take one thing, one concrete thing away, if you can work on that, it uh, it's, it will make a difference. Wow, I love that, and I really feel like um, I've I've said this to myself several times. Like if a student came into my office and was expressing some of the concerns that I'm feeling in my own, I would walk them to the counseling center. Right, like huge need to go see my therapist, right? Um, so that's really, that's really powerful, Meg. Um, so we're at the end of our time. I wish we had more time. It's fabulous to talk with all of you. We will have um, additional resources that folks uh, shared posted alongside this episode. Um, but for the conversation, as we always end on Student Affairs Now, uh, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So really quickly, what are you pondering, questioning, and troubling now? And it could be related to this podcast or beyond. Um, and Eileen, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to go across my screen. So Eileen. Okay, sure. Um, I alluded to this earlier, but um, I'm really thinking about troubling the concept of Latinidad, um, of also questioning why we use the word Latinx if we're not centering trans Latinx folks. Um, mm. and, and really just, um, I think there, there's a need to push back on um, how we think of this group of folks as a monolith. Thank you. Alex. Uh, now you're asking a PhD student what they think now in 30 seconds seconds um <laughs> one that i think dealing with imposter syndrome is a process not a switch um mm. i think i'm really i mean i'm digging a lot of what eileen shared i think i'm in particular thinking about imposter syndrome versus impostering conditions i think that lets us sort of pinpoint these things that happen um, that we, um, those who control spaces more, might have more agency to correct and fix out. 
um, I'm thinking of a quote uh, my one of my master's cohort mates always shared is that comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. I think imposter syndrome is so much buried in comparison and comparison is actually a quite a natural human response, um, specifically in education. So I think about often about the people that I need to reach out to that will help me stop comparing myself to others and make me compare myself to myself. Am I staying with who I know myself to be and how do I latch on to those people? Um, specifically, especially in times of the beginning of the semester when there's so much being spent in assistantships and in your new places and whatnot. And like, where are you finding places to combat that imposter syndrome? Where are you talking to the people that don't make you feel like that? And how are you using those resources? Um, and two, I think, I, I think that even people listening are gonna listen to the five of us and be like, yes, those people feel it, but they're also really accomplished people too. And they're gonna do this comparison game. And what I'm gonna tell you right now is that you put on your leggings most likely in a similar way that I put on mine, <laughs> which yes. is one part of the waist strap at a time, okay? <laughs> and so like, we're all doing this together and none of us is more sort of glorious or have this figured out in any way than any other person. I think about this during conferences a lot when I see the quote unquote rock stars of the field who are rock stars. Um, but they feel these same ways too. They just are mm -hmm. really good at navigating it in ways that I'm not good at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Snaps to that. Um, 100%. Meg, what are you pondering now? Oh, similarly, I have uh, get a million things on my mind just as a result of this conversation. But um, I, I think it's... Um, uh, one of the things, the, the difference between imposterism, the word people use imposterism, imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon um, interchangeably. And what I like about using imposterism is that to me, it does cap capture a little bit more of the environmental, the impetus on like imposterism is something that exists. It's not something that is my problem. Mm. Um, mm. Like a phenomenon, a syndrome makes it sound like I have a disease. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so I've been hearing people use imposterism and I and really like that because I think we have to we have to look at the environment and the, you know, I, I, part of my research was looking at graduate um, socialization and that the, the, especially in doctoral socialization, but I think it is true across the board in higher education, we're being socialized to think, act, dress, uh, write like the dominant culture, um, cis straight white men. And, uh, and that's what we're, we're that's what we're, um, being trained to do and how do we take that apart <laughs> and uh, how do we, because also an identity, uh, the other piece of my work is just, is about identity development and identity is such, is so strongly connected to language and to expression and to, um, to the things that we think and write about. And so, um, so the last thing I'll say then is this, is, is that how can we protect our identity while functioning in this environment? How can we separate our sense of self-worth? Our self-worth isn't being judged. Our paper that I wrote is being judged. How can I keep those things? How can I build some distance between those things so it doesn't feel like myself is being judged, my identity, my culture, my, you know, even though the intent might be to judge those things, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to mean that to me. And so what type of community support, what type of support can I find to, to ground my sense of who I am so that it can't be shaken or so it can, can be held separately from the products that I'm producing um, from, and, and to be able to, I don't think we should, I don't want to say we should separate our identity from those things, right? But we can separate the judgment and how do we do that? Um, and so that's, um, that's what I'm thinking right now. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine. Yeah, I'm thinking about two things. I'm first um, thinking about feedback and I'm thinking about um, 
what it means to give and receive generative feedback that pushes us towards our goals that um, shows us what we like and what we don't like and how to do and not do those things versus um, destructive criticism that really um, can feel like it's attacking our identity and our self-worth and our very being. But I'm even thinking about um, how we can prioritize the needs of people and of community um, over institutions um, and structures um, that tend to hurt us. Very well said, all of you. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for being guests and panelists on Student Affairs Now, contributing to our podcast. Thanks also to our sponsor, Anthology, formerly Campus Labs. Uh, for those of you who are not current subscribers of the Student Affairs Now newsletter on MailChimp, um, you can find out and receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing. Um, you'll receive just one email a week on Wednesdays when we promo that episode of the week. And you can also browse our full archives, which is growing at studentaffairsnow.com. If you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, please invite others, share on social. And I know this is cheesy. If you leave a five-star review, it really helps conversations like this one reach more folks and build a community. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thank you to our fabulous guest today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week.